Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hi, this is Steve. In honor of this week's Academy Awards, The Cinephiles welcomes back Broadway actress Milena Govich, along with her husband, composer David Cornu, to discuss West Side Story. Winner of 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, and Actress for George Shakiris and Rita Moreno, as well as Best Editing, Cinematography, Production Design, Costumes, Mixing, and of course, Best Director for the brilliant Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins. 
West Side Story is as daring, unusual, powerful, and moving today as it was more than 50 years ago, and all of us felt the issues it explores are just as contemporary. It is available for rental on iTunes and Amazon, and there is an absolutely gorgeous 50th anniversary Blu-ray. With music by Leonard Bernstein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, and the iconic choreography of Jerome Robbins, West Side Story is a musical tour de force, and we have an incredible time talking about it on The Cinephiles. Once again to the cinephiles where each week we enter the world of a great film explore its themes its history and the influence it has on us today my name is steve morris i'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in los angeles california hey everybody my name is john roca i'm a voiceover artist host of numerous shows and occasional actor here in los angeles you were laughing at me no in a good way because you're so excited for this new experiment because we have four mics two different h4ns and one h5n or one h4 and one h5n so there's a lot here and i'm looking forward to seeing you do it all no there's a lot there's a lot going on right now because for the first time on the cinephiles yeah we have not one but two guests uh david cornu and milena govich are incredibly lucky to have them here david cornu is a composer who's worked in the theater and has worked in television is currently developing a stephen king project for the vr space of the of the book insomnia david wake it welcome to the cinephiles why thank you steve it's great to be here and we're also lucky to have Milena govich who is a musical theater actress who started on broadway worked in television you might have seen her in law and order rescue me in finding carter uh Milena, welcome to the cinephiles thank you so much steve <laughs> but we're so lucky to have you in particular because today we are doing west side story and i know both of you have a special connection to this musical absolutely we do it may be our favorite film of all time mm collectively both to the musical and to the film yes 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 it's it's a desert island film for us so so let me ask you how did you first come to this musical well i remember very very clearly when i first saw it but my parents are both music professors so uh there were voice lessons happening in my living room every day of my childhood so i grew up with this music i could sing tonight by the time i was four years old and what, what was that like growing up with music professors in your house? Loud? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it was fantastic. Um, I had there were college students coming in and out all the time, and those were all my friends. I I thought I was the coolest kid around, you know. <laughs> and, and did you always want to be a musician or a singer? I have always loved the arts, and I've always sung, and I've I play instruments and I dance, and I've done that since I was tiny. Uh, my big rebellion was in college. I was a pre-med major. <laughs> oh. <laughs> how, long did, how long did that last? I, it, I got my degree. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, I actually have a bachelor's of science uh, in pre-med. Have you ever considered falling back to medical school? Well, I did at the time, but I, I couldn't get this, <laughs> uh, this New York bug out of me. Hmm. So I decided I was applying to medical schools, and I decided, wow, if I go to medical school, I can't do a show at night. I can't be in the orchestra. My voice is going to be crap because I'm never going to sleep. 
So I just wasn't willing to walk away from everything. So instead, I moved to New York. It's so funny. I had, I had <laughs> such a similar experience because I didn't have prof- music professors in, growing up with them. But I didn't have that experience. But I did have doing theater all through childhood. And in high school, I went, I was going to be an actor. And then I saw the really good actors in high school. And I went... Oh, I can't do that. So, <laughs> so somewhere at the end of high school, I said, I'm going to be responsible and I'm going to become a lawyer or a, I wanted to go into politics for a long time. And I said, I'm going to be a poli sci major. So I went to Berkeley. I'm studying political science. But, well, maybe I'll do a play on the side and maybe I'll do another play. Yeah. Maybe I'll do some more theater. Well, I've taken half the theater classes. I guess I'll be a double major. And by the end of it, I was barely going to my political science <laughs> classes and I was really going to my theater classes all the time. <laughs> so I had a really similar experience. Yeah. Uh, and so you went to New York. Yep. I um, was a total cliche because I'm from Oklahoma. I took a one-way ticket, two suitcases, wow. violin on my back, went to the big city. <laughs> and had you, had you been there before? Did you have New York experience? Not really. The first time I ever visited New York was only a year before that. Oh, wow. um, I went and visited for 13 days. I saw 17 shows. I went to auditions. It was my uh, my research reconnaissance trip. <laughs> <laughs> I went there going, all right, I got to decide if I want to live here or not. So I did everything I could to experience New York to its fullest. And I loved it the second I got there. Really? I still do. Yeah. Didn't have any like major culture shock? No. You were no. just like, this is for me. I, the thing I said, I stayed with my aunt who was living there at the time. And I said to her, wow, I'm finally in a city that moves at my pace. Huh. Wow. wow. Yeah. So Oklahoma must have seemed a little slow. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> David, what about you? How did you become involved in, were you always a musician? I was a, a songwriter from day one. Uh, you came out of the womb. Tapping your toe in three, four times. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. As far back as I can remember, I was writing songs. I wrote songs for my mother while she cooked dinner for us at night. I'd go wow. over to the piano and, and she'd say, what, what are you going to play for me tonight? And I would write her a song. I discovered West Side Story maybe, well, it had to be around puberty because I remember uh, watching all those girls up on stage saying, I got to get me one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I did. And, well uh, done. Yeah. Good, good work there. Nice. Uh, and then I really dove into West Side Story in college. I, I went uh, and got a classical music composition degree in college, really practical degree. Sure. And I remember watching the film again and just falling in love with it all over. And I actually took the entire score of West Side Story and transcribed it in college, note wow. for note, to feel what it feels like to be Leonard Bernstein writing those songs. He's also a huge nerd. I was going to say, that is a majorly nerdy thing to do. <laughs> it's one of, I, it was one of the best composition lessons of my life. Just writing down every single note. Writing down those notes and thinking about how he structured those songs, structured those melodies, uh, the harmonic and rhythmic complexity that he put underneath it. Uh, and yeah, it was one of the best things I ever did. It, wow. It's such a unique score. How, how, I mean, just listening to it, it doesn't sound like anything else. And, and I love musical theater. So for me, my parents, uh, their big record collection was uh, folk music, like Kingston Trio and the Limelighters and Peter, Paul and Mary and stuff like that, and musicals. And so the records I listened to over and over again when I was seven, eight, nine, ten were Camelot and The King and I and all of those classic old musicals and Guys and Dolls. And 
they took me to, they had season tickets to the touring company in San Francisco at the Golden Gate Theater. So when I was nine or 10, all these musicals came through and they were just at the time where the real people were still doing them. So I saw Yul Brynner and the King and I. Wow. I uh. saw uh, Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. I saw Dick Van Dyke in uh, Music Man, which isn't quite the original, but was still pretty cool. And, uh, and I saw uh, Sweeney Todd when mm. I was 11. Now, I don't know who was in it at this point because I, those names, Angela Lansbury, they didn't really mean anything to me. But I was 11 years old, and Sweeney Todd was the – I don't think my parents knew what they were getting me into. And it was like the greatest and the most terrible – theater experience I'd ever had in my life. I think they, I was told I was pale at the end of it. <laughs> but then for weeks, I couldn't stop talking about it. And of course, I got made my parents buy the record. And I'm listening to Sweeney Todd. And I remember listening to West Side Story and West Side Story being like nothing else. It doesn't sound like anything else that's in the musical theater to this day, I think. It is a one of a kind score. And it's because of a fusion of classical music, um, 20th century music, opera, and jazz and then you have the latin american flair yeah uh it's really just that that fusion and the energy of all of those different things working together F uh, there's a fugue in the middle of cool who does a fugue not only is it a fugue it's a 12-tone fugue which is uh, a technique used by 20th century composers and he does it effortlessly. John, how did you first come to West Side Story? <laughs> uh, I went, came to it as a kid. Uh, my parents, you know, uh, my parents are uh, first, uh, well, I'm first generation American. My parents are Bolivian. So for us, anything that was Latino based, even though at the time I didn't know it was Natalie Wood, I didn't know, like, I didn't know this as a child. To me, these were all Latinos dancing and singing in Puerto Rico. Like, all of that was just so great to experience. So for me, it was always appointment viewing because a lot of people don't remember back then, you, you couldn't just pick it up and watch it on YouTube. You couldn't just order it or buy it or whatever. Like you had to wait till it showed on television. So it was either on PBS or one of the, like the Sunday night movie or something. And I remember we would watch it as a family. And it was something that I it awoke a desire and a love of musical theater for me or musicals period as a movie uh as a movie genre and and from there forward like just seeing when you see that as your first one it kind of opens your mind Do you think up. it was your first musical yeah i really believe it was and then after that it was singing in the rain all the gene kelly ones like i'm a massive gene kelly fan so to me, me too. it's to me it's this this is the one that opened up the door because i saw the potential of because it's an it, it transcends the genre it elevates the genre like every every genre has one film that like elevates it and i think west side story is the one the fact that it's based in shakespeare the fact that you have the four-part harmonies going on on tonight you have all this stuff going on and then you have this real stuff where best friends are getting killed and this love and it's and the death and her reaction to the death like all of it was what i grew up around you know poor poor latinos those kinds of things you saw that anger you saw that the vibrancy and, and there's such a joy in the in the music as well along with pain you know there's this all this juxtaposition and these romantic moments that like the fog or the haze rather when he sees maria for the first time tony sees maria there's just there's no one else in the world right so all those the, the romantic that i am from birth uh was so in love with this film because it just conveyed all of that 
Do you, do you remember how your parents reacted to it? Uh, yes. My mom absolutely loved the film. And my dad was always like skipping. And my dad's like the old school Latino, macho, all that kind of stuff. So if any film got through to him that he would sing the songs or play around with the songs, it always resonated with me because it was we were so different because I was a sensitive kid who was into the arts. And my dad was very much not as sports and soccer and all that stuff. So when anything that would ever cross over for me, it was... Uh, or for him, it was so resonant with me. Like Amadeus, he, that's his favorite film, bar none. And we're talking about a guy from a small town in Bolivia who worked on farms, loving this music, this film about a comp- composer in Austria. This is he loved West Side Story for the grittiness of it, and also for the way it elevated this idea of because he lived during that time. This idea of the Latinos versus the whites and the and the, and the gangs and all that kind of stuff. You know. Well, that's it's funny. I mean, I definitely want to talk about the the Latino experience in terms mm. of this film, but it's interesting to me that we have Amadeus and West Side Story. It's mm. like, here are these two movies. They're both very theatrical. They both have a huge connection to music. Yeah. They both have a tremendous artistic sensibility, and these are your movies that your dad really connected yeah, it's to. It's mind-blowing to me. And yeah. he also loved Hamlet, the Brana Hamlet. He was a mad fan for the Brana wow. Hamlet. He took him to see it at the Uptown in D.C., and he stayed awake. See, the thing is, as my dad got older, if he fell asleep during a movie... It's not a good movie. You didn't like it. And but with he's, he stayed awake through all four hours of Branagh's Hamlet. Wow. And it was I was amazed by this. So my dad, I think, was always an artist who didn't know it. And he just but he would enjoy these things. But it was always selective ones. So that meant that meant to me they were worth praise. They were worth uh, they were worthy film. So speaking of Shakespeare, where we got to start is we have to start this with Romeo and Juliet. So this is and where uh, this idea begins. No, no, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Okay. When did you first see the film? We haven't. You talked about the score. You talked about listening to music. When did the film? When did you see the film? I think I saw it on TV. Okay. Just the same way as you did in yeah. high school. And I remember. I believe I had read Romeo and Juliet before I saw. Okay. So I kind of knew, you know, what this was about. But, you know, maybe I'd read Romeo and Juliet in junior high, something like that. It's kind of hard to process the language. I knew what the story was. But then I think the emotional reaction I didn't have in reading Romeo and Juliet, I had the first time I saw West Side Story. Yeah. Because it is brutal. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the end of West Side Story is so tough. Uh, and, and having just watched it again, just as tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it, it hung with me in a way much more than Hamlet did, or much more than Romeo and Juliet did. It took me a while to sort of become a good enough reader of Shakespeare mm-hmm. to really appreciate Romeo and Juliet the same way. Because they both don't die. They both don't die. Right. Like Daggett Wood in Romeo and Juliet. She stays alive, and that reaction is so visceral, man. It's so pure. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to definitely get into that when we get to the ending. Um, I actually didn't see the movie until I was probably 14. Mm. Oh, wow. I knew all the songs. I knew the score. Right. But I'd never seen the, the film. Mm. And I had similar reaction. I just bawled. And I still do. We watched, we rewatched the movie as well. And mm. I just cried like a baby. Yeah, we watched <laughs> it earlier this week. And it was like the first time we'd ever seen mm. it. We both had the same reaction at the end of the, of the film. Mm. It is so powerful. It is so moving. So I want to give a little bit of history of the film, but I also am pretty darn sure you guys know much more about this than me. So I'm going to start, but please feel free to, to jump in. Uh, my understanding is the, the idea, the original idea uh, came from Leonard Bernstein, and he wanted to do Romeo and Juliet, and it was going to be Catholics and Jews. That, that, mm. that was actually Jerome, Jerome Robbins. Robbins came, oh, Jerome Robbins came up with the yeah. original idea. And he approached Leonard Bernstein... 
uh, because they had worked on Fancy Free on the town right. and thought he would be a great composer for it. And yes, it was supposed to, it was called East Side Story, and it was going to be Catholics and Jews. Um, huh. And Tony, Tony was was going to be the Catholic, and Maria was um, a Jewish girl who had survived the Holocaust and wow. had made it to America. And uh, eventually they, they shelved the project for a number of years. I think it was in the late 40s when they were oh, first, that early? first talking about oh, it. Oh, wow. And then uh, approached it years later and said, we want to move it to the West Side and let's give it more of uh, the, the, the Latino angle. And that was in the news at the time. So right. uh, it seemed more current and they could do more with the music. And it went from there. But yes, I think some of the songs, I believe Maria was one of the first songs written, and it was written for East Side Story. And I think One Hand, One Heart. And One Hand, One was Heart. also written for East Side Story. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And do you know, and was, was Arthur Lorenz brought in next? Yeah, they... Um, so Arthur Lorenz wrote the book, so he's sort of like the playwright, essentially. Yeah, they. The one of the really interesting things about West Side Story is that it was developed really as a team. Um, it's often, uh, these days in a development process, there's one person that has the idea and, you know, the, maybe the, the, uh, composer lyricist gets with the book writer, they write it, they make their thing, then they're going to find a choreographer, then they're going to find a director. But this is one of those, um, really special projects where all the elements were together from the beginning. Mm. And it was a true collaboration as they were discovering the story and discovering the tone that they wanted to hit and, um, the way the characters were going to interact and the way the music was going to support it. I actually reference this a lot. I reference this as the way to write a musical because you had the entire team there from day one to say, what is our collective vision? So much these days, it's a couple of writers go off, work on a show for years and years, and then they take it to a producer and the producer says, well, that's good guys, but let's do this instead. And what you end up getting is people adding on their vision to something, but there's not this unified vision. And that's one of the great reasons why the, the genesis of West Side Story brought us such a powerful, uh, unified idea. Hmm. Well, and you have four guys, or at least three of the four guys, who go on to be or are great geniuses in their own right. You know, And so you have... Leonard Bernstein, you have, uh, wait, is it Bernstein or Bernstein? Either, Bernstein. but most people say Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Okay. You got Lenny. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. You've got, you've got uh, Jerome Robbins, the great choreographers of all time. You have Stephen Sondheim, who goes on to be one of the great musical theater people of all time. And you have Arthur Lorenz, who has an incredible career, maybe not quite as big as the other ones. And so you have titans, and you would expect these are exactly the kinds of guys who wouldn't be able to collaborate together. And yet the opposite is true. They seem to make each other better. Well, and you also have Hal Prince, their right. Hal Prince. Hal Prince. producer. Who, yeah, let's add another one. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. I've I don't know if you guys have found this in your career, but often I find in my career some of the most talented and the best people to work with are not driven by ego. That's not to say there weren't egos there. <laughs> Jerome Robbins. Yeah, <laughs> there were <laughs> bananas egos, but but I think the the piece itself was so important right. to mm. all of these people that they were really invested in telling the story. And, um, you know, they had their disagreements, but at the end they were all driving to tell this story. And I think that's how you ended up with such a great They also were all so visionary in their own right, yeah. but they balanced one another, uh, the talents of each other in a, in a really surprising way. So Sondheim thought that, 
um, Bernstein's music and lyrics sometimes were too, quote, purple. And so but what does that mean? So yeah. basically he thought, you know, Bernstein, Bernstein actually wrote some of the lyrics. He was supposed to get a co-lyric credit with Sondheim mm. um, and finally said, hey, kid, you can have the credit for that. And Sondheim was like, I don't know if I want the credit with that, with, with some of your lyrics in there, mm. um, because, you know, suns and moons and stars and everything, that's right. all Bernstein. And right. Sondheim yeah. brought in um, that each one of these songs, each one of these lyrics is coming from a place of character and it was so specific and it gave it edge. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of the two of them balancing each other out because we actually like the suns and moons and stars in, right. in that thing. And same thing with the music. So uh, Bernstein's music was sometimes too, quote, operatic to people. And Jerome Robbins would say, bring it in. We need to make this more current. Mm -hmm. We need to work on, you know, the Latino flair of this thing. Let's really bring that in. So he wanted the dance component to it. So everyone pushing against each other's talents made for a greater piece of art. Well, and this, I have this, this experience is true for me too, because not to compare myself in any way, but I do my best work when I'm pushed and I, I don't always like being pushed. Being pushed is not pleasant. This I is like true. It. This is true. Yeah. I like it when people say everything you've done is amazing. And I go, <laughs> good. That's exactly why I did it. <laughs> and yet my work gets better when someone <laughs> criticizes it and, and pushes it and pushes yeah. it. And I get angry and frustrated. And then I stay up all night and I make it better. Well, the corollary to that is when you're working with incredibly talented people, mm -hmm. you want to rise to their level. Absolutely. You know, and I, I think that is also happening. If, you, if you're on this team and Leonard Bernstein br brings in this, this new piece of music or this new dance arrangement and you're right. Jerome Robbins, it's like you want to perform to that level and right. vice versa. And you got to look at this time in history, right? This is a transition period, not not just in acting styles, but in the country, right? So we're getting more, we're wanting to learn more about the character stuff. We're wanting to learn, we're gravitating to more of the inner workings of a human being as we watch stuff on film. So you're seeing this transition from old school Hollywood or old school musical theater into something a little more smaller, a little more specific, a little more grounded, grittier. So logically, Bernstein and uh, Sondheim are going to smash it because Sondheim doesn't write anything close to this going forward his stuff is more it's deeper it's darker like you said Sweeney Todd that affects you because it's a darker more specific more specific type of 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 musical and so what you see here is that but that that causes both of them to learn from each other I'm sure and and, and come even closer to what they're trying to do separately as visionary and then together create like you said a dream team right like what you yeah. see in like in 1992 where they had the dream team they all had to kind of acquiesce to each other so that the ones so that they all could shine together as a team and you see the results of it here in the movie well one of the interesting things I was thinking about just as I was doing research was you got the uh, these four guys or five with Hal Prince is Hal Prince Jewish by the way Yes. <laughs> so we have so we have five Jews who write this quintessential yes Latino yes Irish Polish <laughs> immigrant and it's extremely masculine violent story mm -hmm. and I don't know about Hal Prince but three of the four guys were gay closeted gay mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. uh, Jerome Robbins is bisexual is my understanding or maybe that not. would have been the term at the time <laughs> or right. maybe not well and Leonard it, Bernstein. Yeah. Oh, he, okay. he, was, he, was well, married. he was married. I know he was yeah. married and yeah. had kids. Yeah. Um, uh, so you have these guys who are like really not 
who, who this is not their life experience. And yet they write this amazing thing, which is one of those, there's always this, this thing you say to writers, which is, oh, you got to write what you know. And I do think you have to write what you know, but I also think the creative process is you can write about things that aren't your experience and do it great. Uh, and they create a really magical, it's not a realistic world, but it's a really magical world they create in this film. Well, the story that they're telling is so universal. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're still dealing with it today, well, unfortunately. that's what I was thinking when I was watching it. So, yeah, yeah it is an unfortunate resonance at this point in time. But, um, yeah. you know, that's what I really believe as an actor, because I'm handed material all the time to say, okay, make this work. And, you know, it's an alien battling, who, you know, whatever. You, you've got these bizarre circumstances, but what's the truth of the story? Mm. And these, uh, this dream team of, of creators or so in tune to themselves and to their art and to their passions. And so you give them relationships and regardless of the specifics of the circumstance, we all know what those relationships are. We yeah. all know what it's like to have love, to lose love, to fight for love, friendship, camaraderie, culture, society. I mean, yeah. we, we all know what those things are and they were really driving into the heart of each one of those things. We weren't, dealing with the specifics of the politics of the day, they were simply a backdrop. And so they were really going to the heart of these characters. Well, I would, I would counter a little bit to say, because America very much deals with the politics of the day for the Latinos, well, that's, right? That's true, yeah. Because they're saying, better get rid of your accent. Like, these things are real, and they still exist now. As we're very seeing these so. attacks going since the election, go back home. We see these people publishing all over Facebook and on social media about these notes that are being left on their cars, being yelled at in the streets, being made fun of for their accents, being made fun of for who they, how they look. Uh, so it premieres on Broadway in 1957. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And my understanding is that while it was a hit, it wasn't a huge hit. It didn't win the Tony. I think Music Man won. Music the Man won that year. Yeah. Uh, and, and, okay. And I, I like Music Man. Sure. And it's a it, that is a perfectly American but musical that's a perfect song example. for that time. That's what the appetite was. Yes. Yeah. That's what the musical appetite was and the Broadway appetite. And so, yeah, West Side Story was the underdog. Yeah. It's everything that makes it so unique and distinct. And the reason why we're still talking about it today is also the reason why it, there was some resistance at first. And I think sure. it did run for about 300 performances or so. But yes, that was considered a moderate success at the time. Wow. And it was because people weren't sure how to take the, the intensity of it and the complexity of the music. It really started taking off once it started touring. Mm -hmm. um, right. Once it started going out, there were, I think there were two national companies. There was a company in London. So mm. the, the familiarity of it... Uh, started to breed the word of mouth, which would be a more traditional marketing campaign now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but that's not really how, how it worked back then. So there was um, more of a groundswell of support for the stage play. And then once the movie came out, people already knew what it was. So it didn't feel like, I mean, while it was, it was highly groundbreaking for a movie musical, people already knew the story. People already knew the music. Yeah. Um, from, from mostly from the tours. Well, and it seems as if it became more of an event at that point. And, and I think maybe society had changed enough that they were more right. willing 
to to watch this. Uh, and so when they go to make it a movie musical, they bring in Robert Wise, who is a old school, an old school director, yeah. who is of course the editor of Citizen Kane. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so right there you got some cred. And if you look at Robert Wise's credits up to that point, he was a working director. Mm-hmm. And are all those movies great movies? No, they're not all great movies. No. He was a go to guy, and everything I understand about Robert Wise is he was a lovely, lovely person to work with. Mm-hmm. That's what everyone says about Robert Wise. He was the classiest guy, yeah. even with all of the the drama around Jer- Jerome Robbins, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Uh, you'll never hear Robert Wise say a bad thing about Jerome Robbins. Hmm. And he was the first person to say when they were nominated for an Oscar, make sure to fly Jerome out here and come up on stage with me. So they do a thing which is almost never done in Hollywood, which we have co-directors. Mm-hmm. It's directed by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins. And, I, and I'm sure I can imagine the meetings of the producers where they say, look, Jerome's a genius. We can't have him directing this film. Yeah, right. We need to get a guy who's a <laughs> solid guy who understands the filmmaking process, who understands budgets and schedules and how to work with people. And so they pair these two up. And it seems like that it was a great pairing in all sorts of ways. And Jerome Robbins, from everything I've heard, is passionate and a perfectionist and difficult and emotional. And he drove people. And in the long run, he drove people so hard and he drove the schedule so hard and drove the budget so hard that they had to fire him. Correct. Um, they really had no choice. I mean, they're... That's they, what it sounds like. They were hundreds of thousands of dollars um, over budget. Mm. They were supposed to shoot the prologue in two weeks, and it took two months. Oh, no, is that right? No, that's right. That's right. It's yeah. the only... Um, the prologue is... And the jet song is the only song in the whole piece that's shot on location. Everything else is on stage. Wow. And so they had flown the whole cast um, to New York to do this. So not only are they, um, you know, over budget on the schedule, but their, their, their travel budget is mm-hmm. like quadrupled now. Um, and when Jerome Robbins, um, was eventually let go, he had already staged and rehearsed everything. The dancers were rehearsed. The choreography was set. The problems were coming in is because they would go to shoot it and then he would start changing everything. Right. Mm-hmm. And he did that a lot throughout the prologue and by all accounts made it better because he did. He wanted to take the location they were at and the, the, the way the sun was hitting that day and make sure it's, that it was perfect. He was also doing things that were sort of revolutionary at the time with the cameras, like digging a hole in the ground so that he could have an upward well, vantage point. I'm going to give that to Robert Wise. Yeah. That's, because that's, oh, yeah. From, that's Citizen Kane. The, yeah. That's oh, Citizen okay. Kane. Yeah. Well, the, the advantage that, that Jerome Robbins took with those kind of cameras angles is that um, you can see the feet. Mm-hmm. Right. In mm-hmm. the choreography. And I'm sure we'll talk about the choreography as well. But that was a big um, Fred Astaire thing. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. He always wanted the, the wider the medium shot. Body. And I want the I want the feet in frame all the time. Yeah. And you get that here, but you still get point of view yeah i think what you lose in in some of the gene kelly fred astaire stuff is you don't feel like you really have a point of view you feel like you're watching a proscenium and a lot of their dance stuff because of that limitation but by using these low angles and these odd oblique angles you you're getting the feet you're getting the full body performance but you also feel like you're really getting a character POV. Well, and beautifully, beautifully composed shots. And this is where that collaboration between Robert Wise mm. and Jerome Robbins is, is so palpable, particularly in the prologue, is that you have Robert Wise, whose training is as an editor. And as an editor myself, editors want more shots. 
Like that's what we want to cover the scene. And I think Jerome Robbins took that maybe to extremes and kept pushing for more shots and more angles. Um, but the shot composition, let's talk about this prologue a little bit because it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking. It's Be- phenomenal. Because, because the, what's happening in West Side Story is we enter a world that's not real. Okay, but we enter it through a window that is real. And that's what's really remarkable is you begin, even, you know, in the uh, as the credits are rolling with this abstract sort of Saul Bass uh, image of Manhattan, mm-hmm. which when you first see it, you don't even know what that is you're looking at. You're listening to the overture and slowly it, beca- it changes colors. And then eventually you get these overhead shots of New York City. Which were never done like that before. The straight down overhead shots of the city were absolutely groundbreaking at the time. And before we even go past the overture, um, there's not an overture in the stage play. Oh, really? It starts. It starts right on the prologue. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. It was so brilliant that they chose to do it for this. That overture tells the whole story. Right. It tells the whole story with the music. You're primed as a viewer before you even see, before you even figure out what the abstract art is, you're primed to be driven by music. Mm. And the music is a subtext for the whole thing. So we're already there. So the music is already leading us. So by the time we get the images, are emotionally we're ready to go. Um, and you get, so you get these overhead New York shots and then we move into, which are, I think you've mentioned before in another podcast, yeah. maybe very similar to sound of music. Yeah. The way sound of music, cause we go into the, which is also Robert Wise, also a musical. When you go into the Alps, you're doing this similar jump cut through scenery mm-hmm. thing. And then we get to the jets coming into the into the park. And what they're doing there is introducing the language of dance for the film. Is that first they're just walking, and then you see a small dance move, and then you see a little turn, and then you see a shoulder shrug, and slowly but surely you're introducing to the audience to this is how things exist in this world. at the choreography the way the sharks are choreographed choreographed versus the jets it's very very specific and Mm. um so when we're first seeing the sharks the or the jets rather um that that moment where all this walking and then Mm. one steps back and does a round jump yeah and then the other one and and it's all very lifted they're up Mm -hmm. you know they're people lose sight of the fact that they are jets up in the sky Mm. and sharks down in the water jumping my point here oh i'm sorry (laughs) so so the whole married couples no no, we're on the same page i mean this is this is what we're going to run into um but their 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 choreography is very lifted they do a lot of jumps their arms are reaching to the sky all the time and then you introduce bernardo and the first time we see him dance is with his two cohorts, mm-hmm. and it's low. It's yeah, low. Right. It's really scrappy, and it's sharper. They do they do really sharp turns, and their arms pop out. Yeah. And um, they'll do one big bot ma kick, but it's immediately back to the ground. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's aspirational. What they're trying to get up, but they can't. 
They got to right. be down here. Never, never went in my brain at all. And That's then amazing. when they start chasing each other, they start mim- mimicking each other in the choreography. Yeah, yeah. You see the shark, uh, the jets start getting low as they're chasing, and you know then all all the shenanigans start happening. <laughs> but it, the story is told in dance. And to your point, Steve, you know when it's on stage. It's figurative up there. It's there's it's theatrical. Yeah, it's theatrical. Yeah. Plays right. are theatrical from the beginning. But when you put it on film, it all of a sudden has a literal place. We are mm-hmm. we are you know at a basketball court. How do we get a bunch of gang members to start dancing ballet and go along with this story? Right. And uh, it's brilliant. It's truly brilliant how it is introduced. You know, snap by snap, really. Yeah. And bringing us along into this whistle. world. And the whistle. Yeah, oh, the right. whistle's great. Yeah, and I get upset when I, uh, like I was watching it in the break room at Universal Studios. I put it on. Like we have a TV and I put it on. It was on TCM. And the younger kids were like making fun of all oh, their gang members. doing. And these are dancers making fun of what they're watching, right? And I'm like, you're all insane. I'm going to kill all of you. Because you don't understand what's happening. You don't understand what you're looking at because you're 20-year-old punks and you don't understand like what is happening here. Yes, they're gang members. Yes, but the dance is to, it's going to grow because they're here now. They're on top of the world now. As the film progresses, their dance gets hung, hungrier, grittier, dirtier, more grungy. It just becomes more desperate because of what's happening. So you have to start here to get, as the film progresses, down to the real nitty-gritty of the day. And Cool really does that. You know. And so sometimes when I see people that don't appreciate what they're watching, I go insane. My, because... my mother has a great story about this. Oh, yeah. She saw West Side Story in the theater, in the, um, the, the film, uh, when it first opened. Oh, and wow. she went. she grew up in Queens. And she was hanging around with a bunch of punks, basically, at the time. <laughs> and they went as well. And that opening prologue, they started to make fun of the mm. film. By the end of the film, they were all crying. Right. Well, because you have to accept it. I mean, yes. that's the sort of like, you, you, okay, yeah, you know what? It is weird. These guys are doing weird stuff. You know, <laughs> well, that's and- weird. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes, you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park They they auditioned actor dancers for this forever. Wow! Um, there were extensive extensive auditions sure. because they were asking these young performers to do something nobody's ever really done, which is do highly stylized chore- choreography, highly stylized dialogue, very mm-hmm. highly stylized, but be a hundred percent real. Yeah, and that is not easy to do. Um, so you look at the the silly choreography or the the moments at the top where it's lighter. They believe everything they're doing. Yeah. There, there's no wink. There's no commenting. Mm-hmm. These people are living, yeah. and it was absolutely crucial to establish that at the top, or you don't get the ending. Well, I think that's interesting too. Why you have Russ Tamblin in charge because Russ was obviously experienced in doing MGM musical Seven Brides, Seven Brothers, a mm-hmm. number of other things. So you have kind, not necessarily maybe a dance captain, but certainly the right guy to be in charge of these new people coming onto the scene, coming onto film to do yeah. this kind of dance. And he has, he is like the crossover between the uh, the musicals of, of back in the fifties to what we're we're seeing come into in the sixties. Yeah. He was also really great at establishing the tone and bringing us in. Yeah. You know he. It's also stylized language, and he yeah. did that just as naturally as he did the dance. You know, yeah. having words like protocality in the film, and <laughs> right. and you know, you know, it's it, it's that sort of thing that he had to really sell. But like Milena said, yeah. so grounded and so real while he did it, we went along. Yeah. Well, and uh, you know, we have our well-educated Jews choosing not to, in fact invent realistic language like we're going to figure out how these kids really talk they go no we're just going to invent a new language yeah and we're going to make it up and that's and that is how people talk in this movie which it's like well we're doing shakespeare this is the lang- this is the language of reality here people speak in iambic pentameter yeah. you know this is the reality of the language of these streets and that's what they and once you accept it then you're in Mm-hmm. Um, so we move on to the story. We've introduced ourselves to the sharks and the jets, and we see their conflict. And then we go off to meet Tony. Tony. We, Tony. Yeah, we go off to meet Tony, who's the guy who, as we said, who's the he's the person who's moving on. He's yeah. trying to grow to grow up. He's <laughs> trying his best. He's working for Doc. Um, and yeah. at, at the same time, we know there's going to be a meeting between the sharks and the jets at this dance. And we also meet Maria, who's Natalie Wood, who's the big star. She's the big star mm-hmm. in the movie, and you know. Yes, we have a non-Latina playing this role, but it's okay. Yeah, it's like Eli Wallach. We talked when we did Magnificent Seven. Like Eli Wallach was essentially a honorary Latino, even though he's a New York so Jew. Natalie, Natalie but Natalie, Wood absolutely, because Natalie really conveys that kind of innocence of of 
of a Latin, of a young Latina girl with the wide eyes and everything, just the belief of it. You know, we're a passionate people. We're a romantic people, and still smart so she, and sassy, and exactly, all of that. All of that. Yeah, and she's so, great. And uh, was it Marnie Nixon who does the? Yes, singing? yes. You, she. It's just. It, it's believable that it comes out of her mouth, which is why it took forever for people to realize that it was Marnie who sang. Like people just believed that it was Natalie, and she's so, so good. at it. So just to give a little more to this, so so Natalie would uh, did lay down tracks yes. for all the vocals, yeah. and then. It, for those of you who don't know, when you do a mu- movie musical, in general, people aren't singing live on the set. In general, no, there are exceptions <laughs> to this. Yeah, uh, Les Miserables. Uh, Les Miserables. Yeah, it's yeah. the most recent one that's the exception. It's also a Frank Capra, uh, Bing Crosby one where they did it in the, in the 30s. But Oh, wow. Yeah, or 40s. But um, it's not very good, so you don't need to watch it. <laughs> but, um, but in general, they lay down the tracks and they sing to playback. Yeah. And so Natalie Wood is singing to her own playback, and she thinks that she's going to be the voice that's in the film and was obviously quite upset when they bring in Marnie Nixon who is an amazing soprano who also did uh, The King and I Mm -hmm. dubbed Deborah Carr singing and did My Fair Lady and dubbed Audrey Hepburn she also had the Herculean task of matching right. Natalie Wood's performance, which is the reverse of what you what typically you do. do. Right, right. But the reason they did that is because Natalie Wood had it in her contract that she was going to sing unless you know the executives in post just felt she wasn't up to snuff. And was told on set over and over, this is great, it sounds wonderful. So she had uh, no reason to think otherwise. Right. And they, as soon as they wrapped all, you know, picture lock for her, um, they basically told her, sorry, we're going to go with Marnie Nixon. However, I think you don't get Natalie Wood's performance without her doing that. Yep. Yeah. It's because the music is so integral to Mm -hmm. the storytelling and you go from dialogue in and out of song and it's got to feel the same. It's got to be so believable. So, um, I think it was smart. The producers did it that way, frankly. For the art, it was yeah, definitely absolutely. the best way. If, if uh, you know, t- for her to think that she was singing, I think brought something else to the performance. Yeah. And yeah. we've actually heard her original tracks, a really? few clips. I, I, yeah. I've, heard, I've heard clips too. Yeah, really? um, and it's not bad. She's not a trained singer. Is this like and, Nicole Kidman and, and Moulin Rouge, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah. You, you know yeah. what? Well, if, if, yeah. if they had done it today and yeah. they had the technology today to help sweeten things for her yeah. in post... You probably could have gotten away with it. Maybe, but she certainly she doesn't have, have a high C. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't have high C. No, yeah. she, um, she's just not a trained singer. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't have the breath support to do this particular material. Yeah. It's similar to Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm. That's kind of the, the same vocal timbre right. and, and range it felt like it had, so... So there's a lot of interesting choices made in terms of camera work that you see in this film, and there's because of new technology coming in, that you really don't see again. So the first one is the use of color. So obviously there's a a color scheme within the film. The jets are uh, in these brighter colors or yellows and tans, and the sharks are in purples and blues. Um, And we have these red backgrounds, Mm. and we have, you know, really strong color control and set design. But then they're also using color control in camera. And what I think it is, and I'm not 100% sure, is it looks as if what they're doing is uh, when you shoot a film and you go into post, you look at the film and you go, oh, these shots don't match exactly. And so you do color correction in post. And uh, back in the day, today we use computers to do color correction. But back in the day, what you would do was you would run the uh, 
uh, negative through the chemical bath and you would make a duplicate. You would make a positive out of, out of it. And then you would, as you were doing that, you would shine different colored lights at it in different proportions to do the color correction. And what it looks like they're doing is they're using this for artistic effect. So they're suddenly turning up the red or turning up the blue mm. or turning up the gold because you could see one of the ways you can tell is that the whole image is shifting color simultaneously. So if they were changing lights on the set, you would see the effect of those lights hitting different things at different points, but that's not what's happening. Um, and there's really no other movie or very few other movies I can think of that use this effect so often. And he uses it as we go into their wedding. He uses it in the dance. He uses it at various places. And then he's also using various designs of split diopters, which allow things to go in and out of focus. So we'll have, particularly in Mambo, where uh, Tony and Maria see each other and the world seems to fall away, everything else goes dark and goes out of focus so they can have this private moment. Mm -hmm. It's really beautiful. That's my favorite one of those. Yeah, it's so effective. It really is. And the choreography for all of that stayed the same. Mm. Interestingly, that moment where Tony sees Maria and everything goes out of focus, the choreography that's still happening is exactly what was on stage. Oh, wow. Um, the dancers start to thin out. People exit stage right, mm. exit stage left, move upstage so that they are left downstage. It's really interesting. They've done a proscenium staging, but filmed it in a really interesting way using yeah. the effects you're talking about. Mm. Yeah. I guess I'll say this. Some of the transitions do feel dated, but the music helps to transcend that. Mm. So still today, you, you forgive some of those things that uh, feel like, um, you know, something from the 60s yeah. because it's, uh, the music transcends the whole piece. I, I feel the same way. And, but you know what I think about it is I kind of go like, this is what this piece of art is. You know, sometimes people come to you as a writer or a director and they go, why did you make that choice? That choice doesn't make sense. And you're frequently put in the position of defending your choice. And honestly, as an artist, you do have to learn to defend your choice. You do have to. And if you can't defend your choice, then maybe it's not such a good choice. But hmm. there is a time at which when someone says, why does that character do this? Or why do they dance that way? Or why is that character, that, that color what it is? And the answer is because that's what it is. Because that is this piece of, accept it, don't accept it, it's up to you. And this is West Side Story. West Side Story, they fight by doing, you know, grand jetés. You know, <laughs> in West Side Story, they speak in a way that nobody's ever spoken before. In West Side Story, strangely enough, gang members are color coordinated. In West Side Story, <laughs> things go out of focus. Mm -hmm. People yeah. have marriage ceremonies and dress stops. This is what happens in West Side Story. And this is the world you get to enter into. And it's a lovely world, and you should enter into it and sometimes accept the art for what it is. Don't question it. You'll enjoy it more that way. Mm. Uh, I like that. Let's talk about Rita Moreno and America. Let's do. It's my favorite number in the show. Once an immigrant, always an immigrant. Hey, look, instead of a shampoo, she's been brainwashed. Stop it. She's given a Puerto Rico and now she's queer for Uncle Sam. Oh, no. That's not true. Puerto Rico. My heart's devotion, let it sink back in the ocean. <laughs> always the hurricanes blowing, always the population growing, and the money owing, and the sunlight streaming, and the natives steaming. I like the I know you do. Smoke on your pipe. 
for a smoky in America. Okay. It's so much fun. It's, it's so good. It's so much fun. It has so much content to it. And her performance is off the charts explosive. It really is. And what's interesting is that in the stage play, America takes place in the dress shop with uh, the three girls. It's a, it's oh. a trio. And um, Anita is bantering with her best friend about this. So um, for the film, they brought it up to the roof, added the guys, and the two points of view became the male-female point of view, which which was so smart. And it just expands the whole scope of the song. And the thing, too, like, it's so – it's always remarkable when there's an amazing change – and you look at in in a, in a play coming to a movie in this case, and you look at it and go, how could they possibly have ever done it any other way? Mm-hmm. Because it's not just that having Bernardo adds the sex to it, although that's great, and it's not just that it adds different colors, although that's great, but it's also that Bernardo's a main character mm-hmm. in the show, mm-hmm. where the other girls in the dress shop are not, and that he has a direct. And this song is directly about his conflict with the Jets. So the song takes on and it all these other meanings because you have him and the guys there Mm -hmm. that it wouldn't have otherwise and it goes to the point of even the most brilliant artists in the world and these guys making this thing were the most brilliant artists in the world don't come up with every great idea at once Mm -hmm. it takes time these things take developing you're going to argue about it and eventually you get to what's looking at now is obvious and you you have the the luxury of when you're adapting something they have the luxury of watching their show run for sure. four years before they're right. um, adapting to the screen. So they can see what works and see how it plays to an audience over and over, all over the country, all over the world. Oh, gotcha. So for for America, I think that one of the real successes of that song is, and the whole the number as a whole is that it's, it is aspirational. There's hope, yep. there's verve, um, there's ambition, but at the same time, you're dealing with really specific, real issues. Yep. Uh, but they're still playful with it, and they're still having fun. So we love these people. We're we're in we're in their world, and Rita Moreno is just transcendent in it. She brings everything you could possibly hope for. Um, the the dialogue, the witty comebacks, the sex. Yeah, um, that's one of the biggest things. I mean, it's such an improvement over uh, the the Broadway musical because of the sexual charge. Mm-hmm. Right. You're having a a social debate, <clears throat> but it's sexy, and. Damn, that's it's sexy. Do. I mean, that's how we do it. Oh. yeah, it's that's it's just, amazing. You just can't help yourself. <laughs> I'm just saying, we're, just, we're passionate people, man. <laughs> this is how. It, but no, but it's because it's the it's it's an issue, and they're exploring both sides of it. Right, fleshing it out. It's not one way or the other. It's not utopian. It's not idealistic. There's this ugly underside to it too, which has always been the ugly underside of America. No matter what immigrant uh, yeah. immigrant race yeah. you are coming from, or immigrant or country you're coming from, the Irish suffer through it, the Italians suffer through it, the Latinos suffer through it. Now we're seeing to a degree the Muslims suffer or people of, of, of uh, uh, Middle East birth suffering through it as they come into this country. It's happening. It constantly happens in this country. And we're a nation of immigrants, but still we, we do this whole thing. Well, they try to come. turn it around, but they, they rib each other by yes. calling immigrant, immigrant. Yes, exactly. And they, they tease each other with the same way that they're being teased. Mm-hmm. So we, we feel such an empathy yes. for them. And they make fun of the make fun of Puerto Rico, whether because she says let yeah. it sink back in the ocean because she knows it's not a great place to come from. It's really tough and terrible, and they at least have like 
something here and and that's the difference i mean that that song is so current today mm-hmm. and my guess is it will always be so yeah because you you know we're a nation of immigrants and that is something we have in common and one of the other things all of us immigrants have in common is resenting the next batch of immigrants <laughs> <laughs> and, quote yep. unquote and that's what's so great about um, uh, America because you have one side celebrating this country and the possibilities and the other side which is the masculine side being very bitter and cynical and you know uh, kind of condescending about it and so this is the struggle that still happens now 30% Latinos voted for Trump that's huge to my to our people because there are people who are mad that these immigrants are coming over from their own proper countries so this stuff still resonates now this division within the Latino community as well and so to see it highlighted in a song so perfectly and so vibrant, such a vibrant song. It's one of the most amazing things about this film, how relevant and how much it yeah. resonates even now. And it is because of that universal theme behind it. Right. Hate breeds hate. And that's really what it comes down to at the end right. of, the, the, of the film. And uh, it's something we should all be aware of in, in this day and age and in the climate, the political climate we're in. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really tough because... I remember when I first saw the film, and probably it was in the 80s at some point, and I watched it and I went, okay, I know we're still struggling with these things today, but we've grown too. That was sort of my mm-hmm. thought in high school. Wasn't that nice? Yeah. And now, <laughs> and now I look at it again and I go, oh shit. Yeah. Maybe we haven't. Have we evolved at all? Yeah. Mm. And, and things have changed. The way we deal with these things have changed. And it was really interesting. One of the things that the film does really well that's very subtle is that there is no question that the what we would call today the institutional bias is against the Puerto Ricans mm-hmm. because you have the police that are clearly saying and you have the, the the experience of what we hear about the society that are saying we don't like you right. but they don't do it in such a way that turns the jets into bad guys is that and the jets do things that are bad right because they're both against the police right is that is that that still manages to be kind to the jets which you see like in the mm-hmm. officer krupke song mm-hmm. is they still manage to go like oh we should have sympathy for these people even though they're doing terrible things right. and that's a really complicated line to walk and you don't see a lot of films capable of doing this usually once you have racism you go okay those guys are the bad guys Um, And particularly with what we're dealing with today, where we have a very divided country and we have certainly racist things going on. And then we also have a huge portion of the country attacking a huge portion of the country and calling them racist. Mm. We the subtlety that exists within this film is the subtlety that we need to start to embrace ourselves because this is going to be there are a lot of gray areas in here and we can't get through them with black and white labels. There's another little tidbit tonight was originally only for the quintet, the Tonight Ensemble. And when One Hand, One Heart was originally the song for the balcony scene. And they decided that it was too somber a song for their love song. And they needed something else. So they said, well, why don't we grab that Tonight motif from the quintet and turn turn it into a song? Mm. And that became the famous balcony scene. began tonight I saw you and the world went away Tonight Tonight There's only you tonight What you are What you do What you say Today All day I had the feeling A miracle 
would happen, I know now I was right. For here you are, and what was just a world is a storm. Let's talk about their what I can only call their wedding. Their wedding night. Yeah. And, it, and it's constructed it's so, precious, so beautiful it? because it happens almost accidentally. They're in the dress shop and they start just, They're oh, I'm playing. Gonna, yeah, I'm going to bring you home yep. to my mom. This is my mom. And they point to a mannequin with a dress and they start improvising with that. And there's a tuxedo and that's dad. And as suddenly she's wearing a bridal veil and he's wearing, and then suddenly we're like, oh, hmm. this is our wedding. And they discover it together. And we go into this beautiful song. Right. It's one of the most... It's one of the most charming moments of the whole of the whole movie, I think. With this ring, I be wed. With this ring, I be wed. Make of our hands one hand. Make of our hearts one. get to see like i was saying the potential of who they are and who they are together and what it can mean yeah um in the most pure absolutely way um just the the beauty of that moment just sets up the tragedy at the end to be even worse well and it's pure love and very much the way that romeo and juliet is pure love yeah you know but I don't think they have a scene like this in the play with Romeo and Juliet. I mean, they have the, the is you know, hand. You no, know, they're, the, married, but, they're married by the friar. Yeah, but I, this is more to me no, a more oh, powerful scene of their of the marriage. And the, what you bring up, Steve, is what I think is the most powerful moment in that it's playful, playful, and then they discover, oh my God, we do feel this way for real. Like the the play strips, like the playfulness strips away, and the reality of their feelings for each other becomes so powerful in that moment so real so that they turn together to the light and 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 accept beautifully staged in that moment it's just uh we are completely on board with this journey when we 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 are playing along with them like you know kids and then when they turn we we all feel if you have ever fallen in love before at a young age you can't watch that scene and, and not feel anything like it's it's just one of those most beautiful moments it's also a testament to uh the two of them as actors because uh they didn't really like each other Um, oh really no so that's that's one of those stories i think um natalie wood was 
dating uh, Warren Beatty at the time, right? And she wanted him to be Tony. And so she was pissed that he didn't get it. No. They would be polite to each other on set and say good morning and good evening. I think she was, I don't think they necessarily hated each other or anything like that. She was just very aloof. I mean, she was a huge movie star. Yeah, true. Doing this movie with all these unknown (laughs) like dancer kids. Um, so I, I think in the, the Hollywood vein of that time, you know, she was mm-hmm. kind of doing her own thing. She but it was a true off, but... testament to their performance, mm-hmm. um, in, in that scene and in all of the scenes, mm-hmm. uh, you are completely in love with them being in love. Those are some of the most interesting stories. Cause Sophia Loren, happens a lot. Yeah. Right. Cause Sophia Loren and Charlton Heston hated each other in El Cid. In fact, they would never, she, he never looks at her, never looks at her in the entire film. And she is always in a separate section of like, she's always in a different area where they're together. Even when they're together, she's always like doing something like that. And so it's on purpose because they absolutely hated working with each other. I- I'm still back on young Warren Beatty as Tony. Yeah, no I was thanks. just still thinking about that bizarre to think totally about. Changed no the movie. But he's handsome and charismatic yeah, but and romantic and street. sexy. He ain't street. Robert Wise wanted Elvis street. Presley for the role. What? <laughs> Can you manage? Stop talking. Uh, that, no. <laughs> that would just hurt. <laughs> I mean, it's 61. He's, I mean. That's fair. Yeah, you know, that would sell tickets. They wouldn't have dubbed his voice. They dubbed just about everybody else's. <laughs> I didn't realize they dubbed Rita Moreno. That she's dubbed on. Some of it. Uh, on uh, uh, a boy like, a boy that. like that. Wow. Yeah. That's, that that's kind of tragic to me. Yeah. Um, because mm. as an actress, I mean, she's an incredible singer. She, she she's will an sit- EGOT. Yeah, I know, right? She's our second EGOT, by the way, the podcast. We didn't mention we did Mike Nichols as an EGOT. Oh, that's right. He's an EGOT as well. Yeah, Yeah. I I read something uh, that said she won her EGOTs in the shortest time frame of anybody. Wow. Not a surprise. Yeah. By the way, for those of you listening who don't know what an EGOT is, look it up. It's awesome. It's amazing. (laughs) Um, I have real mixed feelings about um, a boy like that being dubbed because she, she says herself that she couldn't hit the low notes. Um, the, it's, I think it starts on like an F it it is very, very low. And, and when, and the range of that song is so high. I mean, she's belting probably E's or F's by the end and legit, that is hard to do. Um, and she, she talks about it, that she really in the moment of that song, what that song is and where she is in a place of character, she was growling that song, Mm. you know, just full of rage um, and you see it in her performance. You see it on her face. You see it in her body language. Yeah. But it didn't match the tone of the rest of the piece. Um, and so they did end up dubbing her for for that. And and you can see that there's um, there's a bit of a mismatch. Yeah, the in way the performance her face and what doesn't match the sound mm-hmm. coming out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, Betty Wand did the the vocal for that and. I guess, I mean, it's understandable with Rita. She is an, a wonderful singer. Yeah. So to have someone dub the entire song in one of the most powerful moments in the movie, you probably do miss something there. Mm. If, if you listen to some of the actual audio tracks of them singing, like... Um, uh, like Riff. Riff. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really different. And better, in my opinion. Because I don't love the guy singing riff. No, I, I don't I, either. I, particularly, well, he the... only dubbed the jet song. The rest of it is Russ oh, the rest Hamlin. Is yeah, just it's the jet the song. Opening is... jet song yeah. is the only thing that got dubbed. Because it didn't sound like that guy was great. Right. He sounded a little flat to me. I agree, and I also think it, you know you hear riff do it, and you know, um, Russ uh, Russ Hamlin. Yeah, <coughs> it's amazing. 
Yeah. Well, there, so there were certain assumptions back in the day about what you would do and how, and like my the assumption today is you try to have the real person do it and you bend over backwards to have it be the real person. That's sort of the assumption we work on today. And that seems like the assumption back then was kind of the opposite. It, it was for sure. I mean, you have somebody like Shirley Jones. Yes, of course. She can <laughs> she can sing her own stuff mm-hmm. or, or Julie Andrews. Um, right. That was the standard. You know, if you're going to sing your own stuff, that's who you need. Or, or John Raitt, somebody mm. like that. You know, there wasn't an, an appetite or a tolerance for a non-trained singing voice. And it's not that these people are not good singers. And, and But, you know, Natalie Wood is not trained. And this was a this is a level of music mm-hmm. that is more operatic rather than a popular song. Right. You know, so there was a, there's a certain quality that they were really going for that I understand you just right. couldn't get. It was the days before any kind of auto-tune. <laughs> right. So I think we just have different technological advancements that allow for uh, it to be a little more forgiving for people don't have a great well, voice. Well, this film commanded it, right? You don't see this in the Gene Kelly films and the Fred Astaire films. Like, they're singing their stuff, yeah. right. but they're not. This is not... This is an epic music. This is what you would consider an epic. There's no tritones oh, in Right. In Overtures a, and intermissions <laughs> are for epics. This is what we see in epics. So this is an epic musical, and the only epic musical, I think, ever, in, in my opinion. And so, well, logically... Well, huh? is. You wow. mean the, Well, I mean, on screen. I don't mean... Please, I can't even with that one. I, no, I just mean the musical. The musical is the an musical epic. The musical on stage. This, yeah, the story. Yeah, well, I'm talking about story. a musical on, on screen. To me, that's an epic because it's epic as a genre of film. You know, okay, I like, see what you're like saying. Like Lawrence of Arabia and Ben-Hur. Sure. This, is an, this belongs in the epic conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. George Chakiris. Yeah. Yes. He's oh. the other standout performance for me and in Nala this Gina. show. Another Nala Nala Gina. Gina. He's great. He's Greek. He's Greek. Does he get the honor? still alive. Does oh, he get the honorary alive? Latino uh, cred? Oh, my God. Of course he does. Bernardo is so good. He's so good. And he's, and he's dark. Like, they didn't shy away from that. They made him dark. And I, and I think it works. Well, they made, they him, made brown. him brown. They made him brown is what I mean. And I like yeah. that. I like that he You're okay with brown that. makeup? Yeah, with that, sure. I have no problem. They did it with Ilya Wallach in Magnificent Seven. They made him brown Mexican. I mean, it's 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 that's what it's more the stereotype Latino. Like this is the thing that people don't talk about enough about this film. They really come close to being stereotypically racist, right? The comments about them all living in a room together, the comments about them shining shoes, all that during America. And that was but a it, delicate balance. They had to change things in order to toe that line exactly and it works at no point is it offensive at no point is it disrespectful at no point is right. it racist it's conveying what is the, was the reality of that time and is still now for a lot of mexicans who come into this country have to live together have to do you know they're doing the terrible jobs working three jobs at the same time and they're all living together in the, because we have that sense of community within us like it's a really big thing uh, i dated a girl uh recently who was latina we stopped dating but like when we were dating she hated the fact that I consider my friends family. She's like, that's not your family. That's not your blood. And I'm like, no, these are my friends. That's my blood. And she's like, nope, that's not how it is. And her family is her blood. It's, right. That's the thing. More more valuable than, 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 than friends. And that is such a foreign concept to me. But for her, that's what it is. And what you see in the film, what they talk about, that, that sense of, of unity is not from a gang sense. It's from a culture sense. And that's what I see is the difference between the Jets well, and, and the Sharks, and, too. And you see that exactly. That's just what I was going to say. You yeah. see that with George Shakiris. And you see... Yeah. That what he is doing far more than what Riff is doing is he is a representative of this community. Yes. You know, in a way that it's not that Riff doesn't care about the Jets, 
But what he's trying to do and what uh, Bernardo is trying to do is really different. And Shakira's from the first shot mm-hmm. where he's in front of that red wall, red wall and hits it with a fist. Yes. You're like, who is this guy? I cannot stop watching he's him. He's so regal. Yeah. You know, and yeah. his dancing, his dance technique is just flawless. Yes. I mean, it, he does have a Gene Kelly quality about him because he while he's doing all these balletic moves, he's exuding strength. Mm -hmm. And to your point about him versus Riff as the the leaders, you can see Bernardo as, he's trying to be an ambassador. He's trying to lead, he's really truly trying to be a leader and to lead his people Mm -hmm. and to, to protect his family and his people and to really create a better life. Where it seems like Riff is more just a little renegade. Yeah, that's why I think Tony is a correlative uh, rival to Bernardo than Riff. Tony, because of his regalness, his age, his look. He's a better looking man than Russ Tamblin. He has a classic leading man look. So it's the count. It's the which is why it's funny that he thinks he's going to fight Tony when in fact it's. uh, Well, there's a funny tidbit about Chakiris. They found him uh, because he was playing Riff in in the London production of West Side Story. Great. Wow. Yeah, so during the the rumble scene, he was actually helping Russ Tamlin. They're like, "What? What would I do here?" And he's like, "Oh, you do this move." And oh, he, that's amazing. yeah, he, that's so cool. It's incredible. I think to me that the big contrast between the Jets and the Sharks, and between Riff and Bernardo, is that the Jets are young men who are lost. They don't know what their mm. place is. They don't mm-hmm. know who they're supposed yeah, to be. Right. They have don't have the right parenting. They aren't. They don't fit into the society, and so they are strutting and trying to find their yes. place and using the jets as to be this is our place. Yeah. The sharks are young men on a journey to a new country. They know where they are mm-hmm. and they know where they're trying to do. And they're and there they, by choice. Yeah. And, yeah, and they're trying to defend their position. The mm-hmm. Jets, there are threats to them, and they must defend. They know exactly why they are defending it. And that gives that contrast between Riff and Bernardo. What Riff is doing, it's not that he's he's taking what he's doing seriously, but what Bernardo's doing is serious well, that's the in a different way. That's between a champion and a, and a hungry challenger, right? They're the, the, the sharks are the hungry challengers. Just like you brought it away at the beginning, Melinda, you talked about their dancing. At the, the Jets are elevated. They're high above because they're in the position of power at that time. The sharks are hungry. Is closer to the ground because that's that's where they are. They're the hungry challenger, and so that's the difference. Riff is more uh, relaxed, kind of. He's been in power for a while, whereas Bernardo is really, like you said, he's trying to lead his people. It's a it's a whole, and they never sing about being coming from broken homes. They sing about coming from a broken country. That's a difference. Well, I think that actually points it out. You know, uh, the Jets have no family, but they have a country. Yes, the Sharks. Have family, but no country. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. That's something to, to just bring up about this score in general. Bernstein does such an amazing job of putting melodies in your head before you arrive at the song. Mm. So at the dance, the cha-cha is Maria. It's the melody of Maria. Mm. And all through this this score, he works with leitmotifs. He, um, he basically, Bernstein owns two intervals so the tritone interval is is an augmented fourth if you imagine well, a which C, he stole from wagner which he stole from wagner but but he brought it into modern current music in such an amazing way uh the tritone is an augmented fourth so if you imagine on a keyboard a c the f sharp is the augmented fourth and maria right is the right. tritone mm. and it's also cool boy boy 
It's that same motif that he uses throughout the whole score. It's it's in the prologue. It's all over the place. And um, he also owns another interval, which is the minor seventh for somewhere. Which there's a place for us. So when you're teaching intervals to kids, could, could you have a, a composer and a singer on the podcast? <laughs> it works out. When you are teaching intervals to kids, you reference two songs from West Side Story to help them learn those intervals. And something else, Melaine and I, um, you know, we we met in New York on the New York City subway, and uh, we fell in love over the fact that we both love this film more than pretty much anything else, mm. and then came online these new uh, subway trains. They started replacing all the subway cars about uh, probably 10 years ago. And I kid you not, when the train starts, it's an electrical, it's like a mechanical thing. The train goes... It does the, that oh, is the uh, noise. Wow. It's a mechanical thing on the train. <laughs> so we're on the platform, it's and every bananas. time we hear a train go by, we're like, ah, oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's Which good. is, I guess, similar to the whistle, too, isn't it? Because the, the whistle, whistle goes... is the tritone. Oh, the whistle is yeah. the tritone. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. Well, one of the ones that I noticed, too, is that uh, tonight ends with those sort of unfinished chords. Um, mm. That quintet is so brilliant it's um basically it's it's bimodal there's two Two modes so your left hand is in the key of e and your right hand is in the key of c so there's bitonality it's it's really modal more than completely different keys but the sharks and the jets that's all minor the Jets are gonna have their day tonight. The Jets are gonna have their way tonight. The Puerto Ricans grumble, fair fight. But if they start a rumble, we'll rumble them right. And the tonight, tonight, tonight is all in major, and they're happening at the same time. Yeah. And then right before the end, right at the climax of the song, um, the tonight melody is going over the top. And the guy and the the guys at the bottom they move into a major. We're gonna get our way tonight, and the whole piece opens wide. And they're all singing their final note. Everybody's in major, but then the orchestra comes back in, bum, 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 back in minor again. Just a quick question. Uh, the South Park movie. Have you guys seen the South Park movie? Yes. Yeah, a long that, time ago. That four part is very reminiscent of tonight, right? When they're Absolutely. talking about the revolution. I always thought of tonight whenever I saw yeah. that and I was Well, it's very operatic. Yes. It has its roots in opera. Yeah. And um that's another really interesting thing about Leonard Bernstein is that he he had very grand aspirations for himself as a composer. Mm. He wanted to be the great American operatic composer. So he always thought of musicals as being somewhat less than. It's 
popular. Oh, yeah. Like you could either be popular or you could be great and be taken seriously. And so he had a, a, a an interesting relationship with this musical because it was the most popular thing that he wrote. And yet he didn't feel like people really took it seriously in his lifetime. Mm. I mean, in, and he actually really, um, he, he didn't want to call it an opera. No. And whenever anyone said it was operatic, he was, he would really take umbrage to that. He called it because he didn't think it was good enough to be opera. He mm. didn't think it elevated to the level to be called opera. So he called it a musical comedy tragedy. <laughs> I can't believe that. <laughs> Custodial engineer. Th- yes. This is why to some degree people shouldn't be allowed to talk about their own stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is a great example of why this transcends pretty much every other score out there. Because a five-year-old can sing pretty much every single song in mm-hmm. this show. The, the melodies are soaring and simple, uh, and not to say simplistic. They're, there's a lot of complexity to the melody, but they're so easy to grab onto. And then you have this harmonic and rhythmic world underneath it that's unlike anything else. It has so much sophistication, and yet... Um, you can dance to it and, and yeah. you can, and I can't, <laughs> there's not a wasted song. There's, there's not, not a, wasted a wasted song. song. There's not one song that you listen like in just about every Sondheim musical. There's one or two songs. I'm like, uh, but th- there's nothing in here that you cannot listen to. Exactly. Sing along. No, the, all the lyrics to, and follow through as you listen to, we the, had that experience that. watching it again the other night. Yeah. We're like, can you believe? And it's just another brilliant another melody. One. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's not easy to dance to. Like the the mm. mambo, the dance at the gym, yeah, the great. rumble, um, the the rumble is completely choreographed. Yeah, every second of it, all the pauses, and well, and there's um, like fifty six counts, and yeah, exactly, it's really complicated. And so they for their playback, they had um, they obviously don't have all the orchestra recordings of everything yet. They had an onset pianist. Mm. Forgive me if I'm stealing your thunder on any of this. We were going to talk about it. It's all your thunder. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, they had an onset pianist who would play the score for the dancers to dance to, but also she was counting out beats. And for that rumble, a lot of it's not music. It's percussive. Yeah. And so she's banging on the piano, counting the beats, and the dancers are trying to do, not only do this incredibly difficult, violent choreography, but stay on the beat, hit their counts, be in the moment as actors and do it exactly the same every time because they did a million angles mm-hmm. and it's got to cut. And it's, it's even more difficult than just your normal edit- editing because you're cutting to a really strict time signature. Yeah, yeah you, can't, you can't change time at all, which is something you do all the time in editing. And for a lot of this that they're shooting at, particularly for the prologue and for cool, they're on real location. So they're dancing on concrete. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Which is brutal on the body, and, and in in cool where they're underneath that uh, parking garage, Park whatever garage, it is, yeah. is uh, it's like a hundred and something degrees in there, mm-hmm. and they're doing cool forever, and people are, his knees are blowing out, and I know I think Arab uh, mm-hmm. had baby ne- John baby had John pneumonia. had pneumonia and uh, passed out at one point. That's I mean, right. yeah. it, it is it is brutal, brutal on these people. I mean, the, mm-hmm. look, I'll sup- celebrate all the great athletes in the world, but people do not celebrate dancers enough. <laughs> Like oh, yeah. what they do is off the charts, right up there with any of the greatest athletes in the world. Mm-hmm. And you watch what these young dancers did is amazing. After they knew they wrapped cool and they weren't going to have to dance anymore, they took their knee pads and burned them outside Jerome Robbins' office. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will say one last thing. Yes. And for me, 
the the because I love the film so damn much. The the only problem I have is that when Bernardo gets killed, there are no seconds or thirds that step up and take center focus, right? Because you have in cool, you have what's his name? He's second in command. Ice. 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 You have ice do the whole thing with Arab. Arab. Yeah. All you have is Chino. That's all you really have. The other guys that are all on this roof don't get these kind of lines. Don't get these their own separate. Like, what do we do now? Who leads us yeah. now? We get kind of, well, the Latinos. We get kind of pushed to the background. That's true. Which is I unfortunate. Thought about for, that. Yeah, That's a really good point. As watching it for me, up until Bernardo gets killed, I am so in love with the movie, and I still love the movie. Obviously, to the end because it's one of my favorite films ever. But it bothers me a little bit that we get pushed yeah. to the back of the line because Tony kind of takes center, Maria takes center stage, and Anita takes center, which is okay because women, that's all, you deserve the parts, deserve that, the leads in, no problem. But I have an issue that the guys just get pushed to the background because mm-hmm. it wasn't that, it, you, there should have been, because there's a couple of those dudes when you see in America that are pretty hardcore dudes, and they would have been, not, and there's definitely a correlative ice. Uh, on the other side, which yeah. was the widow's peak with the curly hair, he is correlative ice, and he could have had a say. So I wonder if they had ever thought to even write something for them as a reaction to what happened. Because why don't they go out? What, what, who coordinates the Tony death? Is it just Chino? Do they all want him dead? How do they figure this out? I think that's the gaping hole in this in the, in the musical that there's not something there about for them. It's a great it's a great point. I mean, one thing I know from a play that I mm. did in college, it's hard to do things perfectly even. Well, of course. It's really hard. But no, the point is really right. So many different ways in the film where we could have easily hated either one of those sides, mm. but there's so right. many smart little moments in it. Even mm-hmm. in the prologue, for instance, there's a moment where the jets first start walking and there's a little girl in the middle of a chalk circle. Yeah. And they don't walk over her. Yep. They walk around her. Right. And the basketball, they steal it, but then they give it back. Mm. And so it does this push and pull with the viewer saying, you're going to hate these people and you're going to like these people. Yeah. And it's just so smart how they established, you know, shaking hands with one of the sharks and then pushing them. Mm-hmm. And the escalation of that, how they introduced it. And throughout the, the film, even with... Officer Krupke is a great way to establish heart that these these kids are coming from broken homes. Yeah. They're trying to find a way forward. Same thing with America for and, the and sharks. Society, and the society is not letting them go forward. Correct. Right. Is that the society is continually to keep them from becoming who they need to become. Right. right. There's that line Doc yells at, at them in his shop and says, why do you guys make this such a terrible world? And he's like, we found it that way, Doc. I can't yeah. remember. No, Action says, we didn't make it, Doc. We didn't make it, Doc. Yeah. It's a great pushback. It's a great, it's a great line. Yeah. But, but using um, Krupke and America as the two major establishing songs for the two groups does so much. Yeah. There's a lot of differences between the play and the film, which I'm, we may be talking about, but uh, that was one of the biggest changes that um, both David and I agree made the movie so successful because Krupke used to be after the rumble. Yeah. So oh, that was in the, and so was I feel on stage and, that and cool way. was before, right? I feel, That's right. I feel pretty was oh. later too. Wow. After the rumble, because on stage, no, nothing, no musical had ever gone this dark before. Right. They were really concerned that audiences after, um, Riff and Bernardo are killed. They were afraid the audiences were not going to recover. Mm. They're not used to, seeing that kind of progression. Right. So that's why they put those songs there. And Cool was at the top where 
Krupke is now. Mm. Apparently, Stephen Sondheim had yeah. always lobbied he, for that Sondheim change. Sondheim always hated it, yeah. And so uh, Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins acquiesced, gave it to him, and it makes so much more sense. It's so much more successful on a storytelling yeah. level and character level as well. Well, and cool but, becomes this whole other thing. Cool is awesome. It's, um, because cool, because you can't have all that. I mean, I've never seen this. I mean, I've seen mm -hmm. the stage play, but never thought about this until watching the movie. After I found that out, is that all of the anger and mm. intensity and fear and violence that's in Cool yeah. wouldn't exist if you did it before. Play it cool, boy. Real cool. It's really story through dance in such a compelling way. Yeah, and conveying what what is what happens when you're young, when you're angry, when you're trying to bust out and there's no place to go, you know, to see it through a white experience. It's so great to watch this film now in retrospect because you see that now and you see the anger in the in cool that is just about like, I just want to get out. I want to bust. I want to go, you know, and you remember that. And that's why I think what you guys talked about earlier is it's very universal because these are the things you feel. And Steve, to that point, actually somewhere is another example of mm. this being done mm. where... Uh, on the Broadway production, in the Broadway production, somewhere is sung by a random girl, and instead, in the film, we have our two romantic leads singing the song to each other. Um, oh. You know, as a way of of looking forward after such death mm -hmm. uh, on both of their sides. And it, in in the stage play, it's somewhere is actually an entire ballet that happens after the rumble, where wow. it's our chance uh, as an audience to take in what has happened and the weight and um the more emotional side rather than the violent side of of what has happened and uh, there wasn't really a great way to translate that onto film but it also it's about centralizing your character centralizing right. the emotional mm -hmm. uh through line for the piece and by having them sing that song it becomes so much more powerful What's great though about giving somewhere to them too is the way it comes back at the end of the movie where she sings it to him as a final goodbye it's so much more powerful because now she's talking about being together possibly in heaven or possibly you know in another after they've both passed on you know well and that so and that song is so unresolved yes yeah. when you yeah. hear it that it leaves you with this haunting sort of sound at mm -hmm. the end mm -hmm. um, i don't know what what chord we're in there but it's it's something very like it sticks with you yeah uh and doesn't resolve of course at the end of the film right until the credits i think in the credits we finally get something that makes it go okay this is a little bit okay and tony is what happens after 
What happens when you grow up? What happens when you have to actually take a job and you can't be running the streets anymore? You have to actually provide, be a good partner. You know, if you're going to find someone to marry, those kinds of things. You know, you can't hang well, out on the street corner anymore. He's ready to become an adult. Yes. Which is what we hope all of these guys will do right. is to become like Tony, except I got real problems with Tony. I mean, what? Steve. We'll get in. We'll get in. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. I, I want to ask you what this, what your Tony issue is. Now that we've talked about Tony, tell me what your Tony, your issue with Tony. Uh, here's what I'll say. Because we can't just laud the film. I like these conversations where we kind of have a little difference of I'll opinion. Say. Tell me. So my reaction to West Side Story is very much my reaction to Romeo and Juliet, which is that it makes me angry. Ooh. I get angry, and I'm particularly angry at Romeo and Tony hmm. because they fuck it up. Because <laughs> but it's that's the story. The guys. I understand. We don't have a great story. movie without Tony fucking it up. I didn't say it's not a great movie. Okay, I do think it's a great movie, but they make me angry hmm. because Tony does this amazing thing, which is that he actually stops the rumble. So we we have agreed that the Jets and the Sharks are going to fight. We meet at Doc's Candy Shop. They're having a war council, which, by the way, is an actual thing that really happened mm-hmm. in gangs of that time. They would have a war council, and they're agreeing on weapons, and it's escalating. It's, it's going to be fists. No, it's going to be rubber hoses. No, it's yeah. going to be pipes. No, it's going to be knives, guns. Sticks, knives, guns. And then Tony comes in, and he says, no, we're going to have your best fighter, our best fighter, fists. That's it. And they agree. Mm-hmm. And that is that is heroic. That is an amazing thing. But he's influenced by Maria to do that, right? right? His love of Maria, or but, but he love at first sight of Maria, is think, what influences yeah. well, him. Well, and I think in falling in love with Maria, his hatred for the sharks has disappeared, right? You know, and then he goes back to Maria, and Maria says, "No, no, you have to stop the whole thing entirely." So now I'm a little angry at Maria. <laughs> and then Tony goes off to do this thing that is impo- now impossible. He already was a hero, and then he shows up. And he interferes with a knife fight, Mm -hmm. causing Riff to die, his best friend. And both Riff's death and Mercutio's death in Romeo and Juliet pisses me off. Wow. Oh, yeah, because Mercutio is my favorite character in Romeo and Juliet. Riff maybe is not my favorite character in um, West Side Story because it's Anita. Right. But I'm like, this tragedy is your fault. Because you are dumb and young and stupid. And then he kills Bernardo. Just as Romeo kills Tybalt. Right. So now you have added to your stupidity with murder. And so, yes, no, I am angry at Tony. I am angry at the two of them. They make foolish choices that I'm angry at Maria because Maria says I need it to the candy store. Have you ever been in a high-pressure situation? You're yeah. not always thinking straight sometimes. So? so he went down there and that's it, just try to stop it happening. He got pushed. He got pushed. He is a former gang member. That trigger got, you know, the flip, the switch I got see, flipped. I understand what and happened. And so he did what he did. Uh, and he... But I don't. I don't agree with you at all. I think he. I think he's going from pure from pure places. He just gets caught up because these people won't let him go, and he's not strong enough yet because he's not fully out of the life yet. And he has love for uh, for Riff and all that for their relationship. They're essentially brothers. And so when he, Riff, when all that happens with Riff, he loses it as I, as he would, as anybody would, I would imagine. Your description of the character is absolutely correct. I agree with everything you said. <laughs> The character makes perfect sense. That is why he does what he does. He's a good man. Well, but this is why we have bad things happen in the world. Because people make (laughs) foolish choices because they are too emotionally involved in their moment. (laughs) Is that the reality is, and the reality is with Romeo and Juliet, that they are stupid. The reason that they die is because they're dumb. Mercutio's fool. I don't think... think, 
Yeah, I think Mercutio's a fool, and I think that's why he died. He's a blowhard fool, and I think that there's a difference Mercutio here. Mercutio is doing fine till Romeo comes along and gets in the way. <laughs> no, but Riff is different than Mercutio, <laughs> wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. Mercutio's right? much cooler than Riff. What? No! You're insane. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Okay. I now want to go through every Greek tragedy with you and have you explain to me why you are mad at the characters. <laughs> why aren't you mad at Kane? Aren't you mad at Kane through the whole film? He messes that whole he messes his whole fucking life up. Well, sure. Oh, are you mad at him at the level that no, you are no. at Tony? Because because they're more complicated. They're different characters. Look, the, I, I think the thing to me is maybe I'm just distrustful of young love. I mean, maybe Ooh. that's what we get to. Yikes. Is that is that? Look, everybody fell in love in high school, and every maybe not everybody. Many people fall in love in high school, and many people think that's it. Mm-hmm. And you look at that person, and you go, "This is it. This is going to be it for life." And you know what? It's fucking not. Well, no. Of and co- most of us, most <laughs> of us, do not cause people to die. Steve, because of our. Come over here and lay down on this couch. <laughs> Let's talk this through. That's the beauty, but that's the beauty of young love. It feels cataclysmic. It feels like world ending. Right. But when you're, you're still middle, discovering, when it. you're in the center of gang violence, maybe yeah. you should just keep it on the down low for like an hour. Have you ever lived in a poverty place? Like it's it's tough. That's a tough situation. They try to keep it on the down low. They're trying they to do. sneak away. They are. And uh, and it's when uh, Maria gets detained by the cop that Anita. She asks Anita to go. Yeah, that's brutal. Uh, it's 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 one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the whole movie, and you you have another moment where yeah. it could have all been fine, right? Yeah. If if they had if the the jets had just listened mm-hmm. and taken the message, and but they're in that heated moment right. too. They're in the they're in the same place Tony was yep. when he killed Bernardo. That's- that's the sign of a great tragedy. Yeah. Oh, How yeah. many times can you say, if only this? Yeah. If only this had happened instead of that. The more t- of those that you can add to your story, the better the story is. Yeah, and this bl- has a ton of those. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable and organic. That's right. Well, exactly. And, and what's, what we see there with what you brought me is essentially a rape in a musical. It's essentially a rape. That's oh, right. Yeah. Oh, her look. I, yeah. When she turns around and she, retains, she regains her womanhood and says, don't you Touch me. That's so powerful. And, and Rita Moreno is so, well, so amazing is, in this film. She is the, the all-out star yeah. in the film for and me. And Latina, damn it. She yeah. is. And she's considered also the most... Anita's considered the most successful character by the book writer. Mm. Um, mm. Who said... What it was his quote? It was something like, um, she's by far the most successful character because she shows up, kicks ass, and leaves. <laughs> right. <laughs> he didn't say kicks ass, but that's well, basically what he meant. And yeah. her going to, see, to Doc's store... Is this heroic moment because yeah. literally the man she loves has been killed by the wo- man that Maria loves, and Maria has asked her to go to enemy territory to save the man who killed the man you love, mm. and she does it. That is more heroic than anything else in the film. Which is her duet, yeah. the, the, oh, yeah. a boy like that, and yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a love. All right, now you know, and you still don't know. He is one of them! No, Anita. Yes! A boy like that would kill your brother. Forget that boy and find another. One of your own kind. Stick to your own kind. A boy like that will give you sorrow. You'll meet another boy tomorrow. One of your own kind. Stick to your own kind. Like it's one of my god, I'm crying just thinking about it. It's one of the most gorgeous 
duets mm-hmm. written. And it does something that a lot of duets in musical theater don't do. It's a conflict song. Right. You hear a lot of duets that are love songs or people singing all about the same thing. And, you know, now you take a verse, now I take a verse. Right. These are, this duet is two cataclysmically opposed points of view. And through the song is when the two women find the common ground of love and loss and hope for the future. When love comes so strong, there is no right or wrong. Your love is your love. That Anita gets the confidence to go to the store, even right. though she knows she's walking into the lion's den. And, and then what she walks into is by far, I think the darkest moment in the play or in the movie, even though we've seen, you know, two deaths, but the, to the end, the end is probably the darkest, but yes, this is because this is, this is destruction of innocence. The end is the destruction. I don't know of that, that, that kind of gang rape scene is really, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Shocking. Really it's, it's shocking. You're right. It's shocking. But, but she understands this. The moment. highest moment of hate. Yeah, I think. But this is a possibility in that life because she is the wife of a gang member. This is a possibility. This is The fact that you could be touched by this violence is possible. Uh, Maria's destruction of her innocence is, I think, the darkest moment because she is our hero, heroine, and she is, by the end, destroyed because she says, now I have hate. Yeah. <sighs> Which is very difficult. That's, a, that's an emotional moment, yeah. man. It's so powerful. Because and and you, the music you... is doing so much of the work for you. Yeah. There, even, even in the attempted rape scene they did something brilliantly which was to choreograph it but how do you it's not going to be a song right (laughs) right um they brilliantly put america on the jukebox so when she walks in the jukebox is playing america so that tips us into the musicality yeah. of the moment. It gets us into the right. dance. Obviously, the music escalates from there, but it's organic, and that's another reason why it's so scary. Yeah. We're not comforted by the fact that we have a we're musical a score, and right. that we're in a song, and like, oh, this is Haydn, this is a song. No, it feels real. Yeah. Well, and in a way, the choreography, you know, choreography is symbolic, and just as the the choreography of fight scenes is symbolic of actual violence, Right. the choreography of the rape it's symbolic of actual rape. Yeah. Like there's part of me that goes, oh no, she was raped. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's not just that she was almost raped. Um, and the and it's funny too, because you bring up America, is that in a weird way, the other parallel piece of music in that scene to me is Krupke. Mm-hmm. Because Krupke is the scene in which we have sympathy for these guys. And we go, oh, it's not their fault. It's society's yeah. fault. Yeah. What were they supposed to do? And then you see this scene where those same funny, acrobatic, playful kids are raping gang raping someone mm-hmm. in the way of war of of that's who they've become and all of that oh it's not their fault goes out the window because these are the real people committing a real crime and it is so and, and you're with doc when doc walks in it is just horrible yeah hey they're deprived on account they're depraved <laughs> By the way, I literally wrote down that line in in my notes. <laughs> Sondheim wrote that line, right? Oh yeah, yeah. That's a Sondheim line. But do you think the conflict one is 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 that that duet that they have that you mentioned is this uh, uh, foreshadowing what Sondheim is going to do 
many, many times in a number of his musicals going forward. You see that in, you definitely see it in Sweeney with Mrs. Lovett. And, yeah, and yeah. Sweeney, well, yeah. The, this this musical introduced a, a whole nother level of um, of the potential of musical theater and movie musicals in general. Yeah. And Sondheim ran with it. You know, this right. this was really the kernels of what he later went on to do, which is to have um, story and character drive music yeah. um, rather than the more Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein approach was to have the music driving the lyric or uh, yeah. advancing the character. So, so yeah, it, it really was his, um, his learning ground for yeah. doing just that. Yeah. I think that Sondheim uh, felt that Bernstein was one of his greatest teachers and in this moment in time where they were developing this together, uh, they sat down at the piano together and wrote Something's Coming. They, you know, Sondheim was right wow. next to Bernstein mm -hmm. and actually a lot of his musical influences in that as well. He was just such a gifted composer on top of being a great lyricist. He could actually sit down and play it for Bernstein and Bernstein would think, okay, let's take it here. Let's take it there. So the collaboration, the amount of talent among the two of them yeah. was just extraordinary. So something's coming, I think was one of the final songs they actually wrote. Oh, wow. Um, they were already in previews or maybe they were still in rehearsal, but it came pretty late in the process. Mm. Um, they did alter some of the lyrics coming from stage to screen uh, for a couple of reasons, you know, some because they brought in the guys, but also for clearance mm. there, there were a lot of edgy lyrics that they mm. were trying to put through. Some came from the stage play, some they were wanting to use in the film and they couldn't get it cleared by the studio. Sondheim wanted this to be the first musical ever to have the F bomb in it. And so G officer Krupp gay, F you right. right. is what he wanted, but instead it was crup you. But in yeah. in the in the film, even some of the dialogue, um, it was supposed to be uh, sperm to worm is is how it's um. said in in the in the musical yeah. in the Broadway show. But oh. instead, it was birth to earth. There was actually supposed to be a final song for Maria. Oh wow! Um, her whole final speech was actually uh, considered dummy lyrics that Arthur Lawrence wrote for them to adapt into, you know, a, a lyric and a song. He, he expected Leonard Bernstein to musicalize that moment hmm. that was in the, in the game plan. And Leonard could never find it. And it's because he's brilliant because it's actually something you learn is um, when you're spotting for songs, it's sometimes more powerful to not have yeah. a song and to let it just stand on its own as a scene. How many bullets are left, Gina? Enough for you? And you? All of you! You all killed him! And my brother! And Riff! Not with bullets and guns! With hate! Well, I can kill too. Because now I have hate! How many can I kill, Chino? How many? And still have one bullet left for me kind of takes us back into the real world. If it was another song, right. another number at the end, we're still in musical land, but the grounded elements of that story really resonate all the more because there's no singing. It's much like the top of the, the potential rape scene where they don't give you the comfort of music yeah. there. 
that's this right. is one of those moments where like no this this shit's real well sorry guys <laughs> and you, and yeah and you juxtapose that with the ending of america america is a vibrant so it ends with it oh you know it's like exciting even though we're talking about this really difficult uh existence in this country for them west sides the ending is a downer which does not happen in musicals it does not happen and to see that ending that way was so powerful and groundbreaking. Even Sweeney Todd ends on a little because everyone gets their comeuppance. Whereas in this, it is very much unresolved, very much like the tragedy, obviously, of Shakespeare. But it's still ballsy to do that for a musical in the 60s when the, the country may not have been ready for something like that. And I think you're, you're, you brought this up earlier. The fact that Maria lives makes it all the more heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, she was originally supposed to die. Right. And people thought uh, on the team maybe that was too dark, but it actually is darker than I, she I th- lives. I think so too. Because who knows what she ends up as? She probably never. She probably just ends up with this incredible hole in her heart for the rest of her life. Yeah, because because Romeo and Juliet is all wrapped up in a bow at the mm-hmm. end. It's a dark black <laughs> bow covered in cobwebs, but. It's still wrapped up in a bow, whereas yeah. this is unfinished in mm-hmm. a sense because she's she has this life that she's going to go off to, yeah. and it's interesting too because, you know, we know how Romeo and Juliet ends. Most people, I think, seeing West Side Story, know this isn't going to go well. They probably know it's based on Romeo and Juliet, yeah. and certainly as you see it again and again, there's people think that we see things to be surprised and that we see things to see the unexpected, but in fact, we watch things over and over and over again because. We there's something that draws us into the inevitable tragedy in a way. And as you draw close to the end, you know Tony's going to die. You know Gino, Gino's out there with the Gino's gun. Gino's got that damn gun. He's got the gun. He, Tony was calling, Gino, come kill me, come kill me. Yeah. After, by the way, Anita's betrayal, which is horrific. I mean, it's, it's what she just went through, something horrific, and now she does something terrible. And it's completely understandable, mm-hmm. totally motivatable. And that he's calling to be killed and he's running to Maria. And whether you've seen it once mm-hmm. or no times or a thousand times, you're like, here it comes. Well, and that's the, the inevitability is something that we are drawn to mm-hmm. in this strange way. The greatest tragedies are surprising but inevitable. Yeah. And that's the great combination that it gives you. And that's what's so great about their relationship, right? That's what's so because it's so realistic throughout the whole film. Like, just you just buy it. These two actors, uh, uh, Bamer, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and Natalie have just this connection, right? And he never did anything co- close to this ever again as an actor. But there was something so powerful in their connection because he's older, she's younger. There's this. She brings him back to this innocence. She gives him hope of what he'd been looking for since the beginning of the movie. When he's like, something's out there. I don't know where it is. When he's singing all that, she is that something. And then their future becomes that something after One Hand, One Heart, which is one of the most beautiful songs ever written and pure about love. And then eventually what goes on in their mistakes, their tragic mistakes, then Anita betrayal. And so the ending when it happens is so much more pointed because he does stay alive to say some final words to her. And then she sings to him and it's Chino. There's so much potential yes. in them. You right. know, right. the the potential of their relationship is transcendent for not only them, but maybe for their cultures too, if, if they could have worked it out. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I think the fact that Maria lives at the end uh, just makes this an even better allegory as to why we are still here today still dealing with this mm-hmm. because people do live on everybody doesn't die right. people do live on and what do you do after this moment right and we can, we see firsthand that destruction of innocence and we go yep 
that's why we're still here wrestling yeah. with all the same crap. Yeah. Well, and as dark as the end of the film is, there is one moment we haven't talked about that is hopeful. And to me, it's an amazing moment. It's very small, which is, it's the pallbearer moment, which is mm. that the jets go to pick oh, up Tony. Oh, God, mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking moment. And they can't, yeah. and there are three jets that come up, and it's so beautifully constructed. Yeah. And they start to lift him, and they struggle a little, and the sharks come and help. Right. And there's this moment of conflict, and then there's this moment of acceptance. Yeah. And the sharks and the jets carry Tony's body out together. That's hopeful. And they go back to the God's eye view. Yeah. And she, but she walks alone now with the black skull. So she is the collateral damage that is unfortunate for the possibility of a new dawn, a a new peace between the gangs. But I don't think, I think, I think some of the jets and some of the sharks are not going to fight again. Right. Yes. I don't know that all of the jets and all the sharks are going to fight again. Which is always, which is true. But some of them might learn a lesson. Right. Right. You know, that's the hope you walk away with. West Side Story, it it has brilliant music, it's brilliant story, it's brilliant writing, it's brilliant choreography. Together, they all transcend all those individual genres. They they have come together in such a beautifully cohesive and expressive way that you can't help but be drawn in. Mm-hmm. And if you just sit and listen to that overture before you even see anything stylized you're in and um all the elements are working at such a high level that there's so much to learn and i could watch it a million times and just keep learning what she said uh i would say you know it's it's worthwhile watching this film it's also worthwhile sitting down and just listening to the score just listen to these songs and it takes you to a, a different world um like really no other musical can what do you think john it's at at the same time a classic movie from its time period and at the same time timeless. Like I think that's what's so amazing about the film. It does such a great job of walking the line of two different things constantly the same the whole time as you're watching it. And I no longer consider it just a musical. Like it's it's an epic film. And if you have not seen it or haven't seen it for a long time, after you listen to us talk about it, go back and revisit it with the amazing information that you've heard today from our two guests and see what you didn't see before and pick up and appreciate it even more. And that's what's so great about this film is it's like any classic good film. You appreciate it every time differently when you watch it. Every single time you watch it, you get something different out of it. And I think that's what's so amazing about it. And it's heartbreaking and moving and everything you could possibly want. And if you go on the journey, the reward is so worth it, no matter how painful it is. There, there's so many things to see in this film. You listen to, as you say, with the overture, that music before and still today, there is nothing like it. And then you see the beautiful cinematography and you move into the city in a way that you've never seen it before. And then you see the dance and it's a style of dance that you've never seen before. And you see these young performers and you can see in songs like America and songs like Cool, the power and the energy and the pain and the passion 
passion that they're putting into it. And you've never seen anything like that before. And then you listen to the lyrics and the words and the humor mm -hmm. and the complexity and the emotion that comes through those lyrics. And that's nothing you've seen before. And all of those things, which any one of them would be enough to make a great film, they come together towards this bigger purpose, which is to tell this story, which as we're all reacting to today, that story hits just as hard today as it did in 1961. And so, you know, this is a movie that you do need to keep watching. Hmm. I'm not just saying you should watch it. I'm saying you need to watch it. And we have to keep watching it because it's a movie which beyond all that beautiful artistry that goes into it, tells us something about ourselves and our world that we have to keep reminding ourselves of. Mm -hmm. That the conflicts that are coming, they're inside of us. And that we are responsible for figuring out how to solve them. And if we don't, we get to the end of West Side Story. And that seems to be happening over and over again until we say stop. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was a great. That was great. Yeah. Thank you, guys. This was so much fun to be yeah. here. So much fun to be with you today. Thank you for having well, us on. Well, it was really a pleasure having yeah. you. Uh, David, Milena, if people wanted to reach you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm at Milena Govich on all the socials. That's M-I-L-E-N-A-G-O-V-I-C-H. I'm at David Cornu, D-A-V-I-D-C-O-R-N-U-E. It's nice to have unusual names. You just get to have your name. Uh, John, where can they reach you? You guys can always find me at The Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A. You see all the shows I'm hosting, co-hosting, uh, like this one and all the shows I'm a guest on. So all sorts of great stuff to find John on. As always, we want to hear your comments on uh, West Side Story or any of the movies we talk about. We want to hear your suggestions of other films you'd like us to do. You can always reach us on Facebook at The Cinephiles. That's C-I-N-E dash F-I-L-E-S. You can reach me on Twitter at S.R. Morris. Of course, we want you to review us on iTunes. We've gotten amazing reviews from you so far. We want more of them because we are greedy like that. And uh, I want to, again, thank uh, David Cornu and Melinda. Kovic for coming on to talk about West Side Story. I don't know about you, but I learned so much. Oh, so much. I'm going yeah. back and watching it this afternoon again. Wow. Um, and I hope you watch it too. And that's it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.